service. Disgraceland is brought to you by Disgraceland All Access. Disgraceland All Access membership is your chance to support the show and get ad-free listening, an exclusive scripted episode every month, and exclusive bonus content every week, plus access to an always-on chat with me and your fellow discos. Visit disgracelandpod.com slash membership or just click on the link in the show notes for this episode. Disgraceland is a production of Double Elvis. The stories about Aerosmith are insane. Their mere presence incited riots and violence among fans. They mixed target practice with black tar heroin. They trained roadies how to feed them cocaine on stage. Frontman Steven Tyler claims he spent $6 million on coke alone. They lived on the edge and nearly teetered over it more times than anyone can count. And at their peak, Aerosmith was sex, drugs, and rock and roll, in the flesh, and wrapped up in spangly scarves and jumpsuits. Then they swapped some of the sex for more drugs. And at their lowest, they traded their rock royalty status for a few more pills and thrills and nearly lost their crown in the process. But their inevitable comeback in decades-long career transformed Boston into a renowned rock city in a way that none of their predecessors could. Because Aerosmith made, I can't believe I'm going to say this, great music. There are a few bands out there that I have as much of a love-hate relationship with as Aerosmith, but I digress. Great music, okay. But unlike that loop at the top of the show, that wasn't great music. That was a preset loop from my Mellotron called Sinope Diddy MK2. And I played you that loop because I can't afford the rights to No More Tears, Enough is Enough, by another Bostonian, Donna Summer, and also Barbara Streisand. And why would I play you that specific slice of breakup disco cheese? Could I afford it? Because that was the number one song in America on December 6, 1979. And that was the day that Steven Tyler, in the middle of a seizure, had to be dragged off stage again. On this episode, riots and violence, target practice and black tar heroin, spangly scarves and jumpsuits, and Aerosmith. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Disgraceland. tell from the audience it was a seizure. Steven Tyler spasmed on stage, jerky movements like an insect stuck on its back. One leg doing the jitterbug, his other limbs limp as a rag doll. Moments ago, he was peacocking, shaking his hips, ribcage popping out through his skin-tight jumpsuit. He was a blur of limbs, a feral animal, but somehow still smooth enough to steal your girl and her best friend. Aerosmith had barely started their sold-out show in Portland, Maine on December 6, 1979. The Steven was halfway through screeching their new tune, Reefer-Headed Woman, 
when he went from Energizer Bunny to dead meat. About to be dead meat anyway, if no one did anything fast enough. Aerosmith guitarist Brad Whitford knelt over Steven's body as he played on. Not that it mattered if the band stopped. No one knew this fucking song anyway. The lead guitar player didn't flinch. He kept his back turned to the twitching pile of hair and bones on the ground, ice cold. This wasn't Joe Perry. Joe was gone, fired, depending on which band member you asked. This was Joe's replacement, Jimmy Crespo. Sometimes the kids could get into his wrist, but more often than not, they heckled the hell out of him. Across the country, they used the same refrain. Hey, where's Joe fucking Perry? Actually, where the hell was Aerosmith? This clusterfuck in front of 6,700 fans couldn't be the same band that gave them rocks just a few years ago. This band was all blow and no Joe. Except for tonight. Steven's coke stash ran dry before showtime. He relied on the blow to keep him upright after his ritual of chugging two double beefeater martinis. The booze and the coke it practically canceled each other out. But there was nothing soaking up the gin in his stomach tonight. The quadruple dose of Beefeater sank him after only a few songs. Nobody needed to know that right now. Steven shook, sick as a dog on the floor, and kept up the charade. Anything to get the gig canceled, and anything to get high again. LSD, heroin, speed, quaaludes. Every day with Aerosmith was a day with a buffet of drugs in your face. Even in the early years, when they were a pack of young punks performing to city teenagers at high school dances. If you wanted to make it in Boston in the early 1970s, you needed all the help you could get. Boston was not a rock city. It was the opposite of a rock city. So opposite that the genre was literally banned across town during its formative years. Blame that on Chuck Berry and Alan Freed. Instead, nearby Cambridge blossomed as a folk haven lousy with barefoot people in their mellow acoustic guitars. And Aerosmith was none of that. They weren't subtle and they weren't soft. They dressed with shredded rags and tattered scraps of hippie garb and they made it all look gritty. They stomped around, screeched, and made sexual innuendos out of anything that could be measured in inches. Aerosmith had the songs and the swagger. Some said they were a poor man's Rolling Stones. For what it's worth, Steven Tyler and Mick Jagger kinda had the same big lip mug. Another said they were jacking the New York doll shtick, and well, what I said about Mick Jagger is also true about Steven Tyler and David Johansson. But Aerosmith was all Boston. They crammed into an apartment together on Calm Ave, practiced in the belly of a BU basement, worked on new material in the Bruins locker room at the Garden. They played New York City sometimes, sure, and that's where Clive Davis discovered them in 1971. But when Columbia Records had them sign along the dotted line, Aerosmith didn't bail on Boston. They doubled down and recorded their debut album on their home turf at Intermedia Studios on Newbury Street. Aerosmith was Boston or bust, and they had the right treats to keep their train a-rolling towards stardom. Ludes, hash, coke, joints rolled like massive Jamaican spliffs. All of this remained within reach, even when the band was barely scraping by. Reach into the freezer and grab some crystal meth to stick up your nose. Find some LSD to shoot. Yes, shoot. Shooting LSD. Need some pot? Have a brownie. Well, unless the dog eats them all and is so comatose you have to carry him outside so that he can take a piss. Bomber. 
Even when Stephen laid down the sweeping Mellotron notes, that's right, Mellotron, on Dream On, one of the band's most endearing songs, he snorted lines of crystal THC as he played. Aerosmith had drugs for every occasion. You could count on it. The cops certainly did. Steven Tyler didn't have time to think. Not that he thought much before he acted, anyway. Psst, he hissed in Brad's direction. The entire band was lined up in a New Jersey police station, handcuffed to a bar in the hallway. Two state troopers found a few joints and pot seeds in their van on the New Jersey turnpike. What the cops didn't find was two ounces of weed in Brad's pocket, some roaches in a film canister, and Steven's hash coffin full of Nembatol and the final bag of weed, which just so happened to be down Steven's pants at the moment. The cops would be back and they definitely were gonna frisk him again. Steven could hold his own. He'd shoved weirder things down his pants before, that's for sure, but those two ounces in Brad's jeans were a dead giveaway. They had to make the pot disappear, pronto. Steven had already managed to free one hand from his cuffs, and all he needed now was a distraction. Cops were suddenly sprinting down the hallway. They grabbed shotguns as they shouted over each other, something about a Black Panther riot in Newark. Officers poured out of the station in droves. Perfect timing. Psst. Steven urged Brad to slip in the bags of weed. Brad didn't have time to argue. He wriggled the bags from his jeans pocket and into Steven's free hand. Then Steven tossed each one through an open doorway and into a dark room without thinking twice about it. The band exhaled with relief until they were pulled into the fingerprint room. The same room where Steven tossed the weed. Incredibly, both baggies landed right on an officer's desk. Aerosmith put on their poker faces. One by one, the band walked right by the bags, acting casual, looking elsewhere. And the cop took their prints and didn't say a word. He was either that blind or that incapable of connecting the dots. Didn't matter. What mattered was that the band was only booked on misdemeanor charges. They'd be speeding down the turnpike again by evening, with just enough time to rush down to Pennsylvania for a gig. Aerosmith piled back into the van and floored it until they pulled up to the show, strapped their guitars on, stepped on stage in the nick of time, gazed into the audience and saw 12 people. This gig wouldn't even cover the fucking gas money. But it wouldn't be like this for long. Soon, Aerosmith would be soaring in front of big crowds and with some big names. Shit, soon Aerosmith would be soaring above the big names and money would be the least of their problems. Hey guys, I want to talk to you about my Tacovas cowboy boots. I picked them up while I was in Austin, Texas. I had this event I had to go to that night. It was a formal thing. I had this idea of what I was going to wear, but I needed the one extra thing. And I was like, aha, Tacovas. There's a Tacovas here in Austin. The dudes who worked at the store were great. I found the exact boot I was looking for. This boot is called the Dylan. I got it in midnight black. I wore them to this formal event. I had on a suit. And then tonight, I'm going to wear them with jeans to my son's baseball game. These things are amazing cowboy boots. 
They're super comfortable and I can tell already that they're going to last for a long time. A couple things you can do here to check out Tecovis. If you can, stop by your local Tecovis store. Have a complimentary drink or two. The experience is awesome. You can shop all the new styles. You're going to smell that fresh leather in the store. The friendly staff are going to be at your service. They're going to take care of you. They're going to make you feel like a rock star. A lot of the Tacova stores have these leather custom branding services to make your boots truly personalized. They put on regular live music and events. It's an awesome in-store experience. So if you have the opportunity to check out a Tacova store, I highly recommend it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tacovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S. Dot com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and they ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hey, Discos, it's Jake here. Thank you so much for listening to Disgraceland. Your support truly means a lot to me, and it's because of you that my team and I are able to make this show. If you want more Disgraceland, if you want more regular interactions with me and the community of Disgraceland listeners, or if you simply want to listen to the show ad-free, go to disgracelandpod.com slash membership, or just click on the link in the show notes for this episode. For just five bucks a month, you can listen to every episode of Disgraceland ad-free. Plus, you'll get one brand new exclusive episode every month. You'll also get weekly unscripted bonus content, special audio collections, and early access to merch and events. There are two ways that you can support the show and become a member at disgracelandpod.com slash membership. You can sign up using Patreon and listen to the show ad-free on Apple, Spotify, and most other major podcast platforms. And Patreon members also get access to all the other perks of membership and an always-on chat where I'll be interacting with you and diving deeper into the world of Disgraceland. But maybe you're currently an Apple Podcast subscription listener and you want to just tap into all the bonus audio content and ad-free listening that we're offering. We're also offering this membership as a premium channel on Apple Podcasts. However you choose to join, all you got to do is go to disgracelandpod.com slash membership. Support the show for just $5 a month, five bucks, or sign up for an annual plan and get two months free. Come join me and your fellow discos at Disgraceland All Access by visiting disgracelandpod.com slash membership. No way we're going to fly this thing. Aerosmith's head of flight operations examined the sad excuse of a plane in front of him. A creaky old conveyor, a death trap with wings. Two pilots smoked and passed a bottle of Jack Daniels back and forth in the cockpit. The smell of stale nicotine clung to the cabin. Aerosmith needed to charter a private plane for touring, but they didn't need it this badly. The band's accountant snapped back at him. Yes, they were going to fly this thing, because it was going to save them 30 grand on this leg alone. The head of flight ops stood his ground. He was an Air Force pilot. He could smell more than smoke on this conveyor. He smelled gore tragedy. If you're flying them in this airplane, I'm resigning, effective immediately. Aerosmith passed on the plane. Leonard Skinner did not. Later that year, the same plane went down in Mississippi and took the members of Leonard Skinner with it. Cheaping out was costly in the end, and by the mid-1970s, Aerosmith wasn't cheaping out on anything. There's drug money, Then there's designer drug money. Then there's people hired just to serve you drugs money. For years, Aerosmith just had regular old drug money. 
enough to keep their fridge stocked with chunks of meth and their noses full of blow. Life's simple pleasures for a little rock and roll band from Boston. Then, they made an album called Toys in the Attic, and everything changed. Toys in the Attic wasn't Aerosmith's first album, but it was the first album to give them an international liftoff. Songs like Walk This Way had fans sprinting to record stores and snapping up concert tickets. The real money started pouring in, and better money meant better drugs. Better drugs made your heart beat harder and your teeth gnash harder, and they made you rock harder. By 1976, Aerosmith danced to a whole new beat. It's the year Aerosmith recorded Rocks, the gritty can of whoop-ass that straddled the line between hard rock and heavy metal. The sound was what other people call cutting edge, tough as one of the five glistening diamonds on the album's cover. The album peaked at number three on the Billboard 200, and their unprecedented high on the charts funded unprecedented highs for the band. The kind of highs you never wanted to come down from, the kind you'd do anything to hold on to for a few more minutes, especially when you're shuffling between states and stages on tour. And that's what the roadies were for. Members of Aerosmith's crew were trained in keeping the band as high as possible for as long as possible. These guys were full service, highly skilled, always in motion. Steven's microphone stand must remain wrapped in his scarves at all times. You know, the ones that look like they were ripped off a hippie's back after a weekend in Woodstock. And that's not just style, that's a fashion stash. Each scarf is laced with little pockets full of tunals and quaaludes to pop during the show. Do not remove the scarves. Paste some nudie photos of groupies to the amps. Put a bottle of Jack on the drum riser. Keep that 150 proof white rum nearby for Steven as well, even though he'll probably hand it off to the kids in the front row. Those little fuckers have never swallowed rocket fuel like that before and they'll be puking all over each other in no time, but that's not your problem. You got enough shit to deal with backstage. This is just the calm before the storm. The storm is already here though, tearing up the rooms, they've said backstage. It just hasn't blown your specific way just yet. In the background, someone's gonna yell Aerosmith's new catchphrase, and that is, time for a production meeting, and that's just code for time to do some more blow, and boy howdy is there blow. Sometimes it's kept in a room with a cop standing guard outside. Can you fucking believe that? A cop guarding a bunch of blow. Sometimes there's a fat fucking mound of it next to the deli platters, but whatever, take a breather, rest. You're gonna need it, it's gonna be a long night. But fuck these divas. You steal a few slices of deli meat to wipe your ass with and sneak them back into the spread. And the band is none the wiser. And they're gacked out of their brains, too gacked to even get laid. And that's good news for you because the ladies are lining up around the block who want to get backstage. Sharing some love is the one way to get a tour laminate. You know, they can share their love with you. The guy who has the access. The guy who has the access to the rock stars. Anyone in line who thinks they're above this sort of exchange can talk to the tour manager, but that's gonna set them back an entire stash of coke. First it was a gram, then an eight ball, now it's an ounce and not a gram less. And the band has no idea about this particular price of admission, and that mound and catering is supplied by desperate fans and sold to the band at full price. Did you follow all that? I barely followed all that. Whatever, doesn't matter. As long as you're not bored and comatose. Shit, is Steven Tyler comatose? The promoter's handling that now. He says Steven's awake, sort of. He'll need a ride onto the stage, on your back. At least he's lighter than any amp you had to push around. So you sit him down at the center of the stage, prop him up, guide him to that trusty set of scarves. The lights go up, showtime. But not so fast, Rody. Your work isn't over yet. You're Joe Perry's right-hand man, on standby with a cup of blow and a straw. And when the lights dim between songs, that's your cue. 
rush over to him, guide the straw right up to his nostril, and let him take a few toots, and then remove the straw and rush back into your corner. Quick, motherfucker, before the lights come up. Steven's doing the same on his own. He's got his own quote-unquote medicine cabinet at the front of the stage, hidden inside a drum head, and that's where he keeps his Dixie cups, one full of Jack and one full of Coke. Not actual Coke, not Coca-Cola, cocaine. He tosses a towel over his head to disguise himself as he slurps and snorts. Not that he's fooling anyone. They don't call Steven and Joe the toxic twins for nothing. They'll take any drug you put in front of them anytime, sometimes at the exact same time. And that's all right, because the show's running smoothly. So far, Steven is happy with the sound, which means Steven hasn't tossed a monitor at a security guard. No one's hurling any bottles and trash on stage, and that's good, good. Now you just set your flashlight down on this amp for a moment, and shit, you just knock some fat lines onto the floor. How did you not notice those were there? So, after all that, you're fired. Life on the road with Aerosmith was so toxic that the band developed two rules. One, accept nothing but blowjobs 10 days before the tour ends so you don't take any diseases home to your girls. And Steven had already contracted the clap twice by 1976 and once shared a nice family of crabs with Joe Perry. And nobody wanted to see or hear about any more of that. And the second rule was just for the crew. They called it the 24-hour rule. If you hadn't seen a member of the band in 24 hours, you found their hotel room and broke down the door. Not to get their ass up to perform, but to make sure they weren't dead. And if you could point to an item on tour, there are usually drugs inside. Like I said before, Steven's scarves, Joe's custom suits, arriving with pockets full of blow in them, fake fan mail put together solely to create the illusion that fans were sending them massive quantities of drugs. And that trick was particularly helpful at customs. But the truth was that Aerosmith's fans could be just as dangerous as the drugs. October, 1977, Philadelphia. A bomb soared toward the stage from the sea of denim jackets. Someone in Aerosmith's Blue Army just declared war. The M80 erupted as the band climbed the stairs to the stage for an encore, and the cherry bomb snapped like a shotgun blast. Smoke, then chaos. Steven Tyler staggered around in circles, one hand over his eye, screaming that he couldn't see. Turns out the bomb singed his cornea. Blood was spurting from Joe's hand, spilling from an open artery. The band packed up without ever starting the encore and got a police escort to the nearest hospital. The M80 was a demented welcome to receive from Philadelphia, a twisted taste of Aerosmith's medicine. Fans didn't need to share stories about the band's bad behavior. They could see it right in front of them. Those towels and scarves weren't fooling anyone. If the bad boys of Boston could break the law in plain view, then their fans could misbehave just as hard. When Aerosmith performed at Boston College, fans who couldn't get tickets started a riot and broke into the venue using railroad pins. When dozens of fans were arrested for drinking and smoking in Fort Wayne, Indiana, Aerosmith announced to the crowd that they'd pay for their bail. But it was Aerosmith's crew who really paid for the band's bad behavior. Their roadies were dropping like flies by the late 1970s. One dead from cirrhosis, another took his own life. One of the most trusted crew members left the band because he loved Joe Perry so much that he didn't want to be the person who found Joe dead. And if he stuck around, he was sure that that very thing would happen. Aerosmith was sex, drugs, and rock and roll in the flesh. Emphasis, though, on the drugs. And that meant Aerosmith was a fucking hazard. They needed to reform. Rehab without the actual rehab. Aerosmith needed to get away before they went away forever. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. 
They called it the Cenacle. 300 barren rooms, one chapel, countless cobwebbed fireplaces. Shadows of nuns and habits scurried across the peeling walls. The massive former convent branched into wings on a 98-acre plot of rolling plains in New York. Not a soul for miles. Just you and the Holy Spirit. Back in the day, women came to the Cenacle to escape from worldly temptation and to look within. They tuned out all the noise and tuned into the Cenacle's divine silence. If you focused hard enough, you might just hear a higher voice being whispered to you, instructing you on how to turn your life around. And all you had to do was commit to change. All you had to do was pull the trigger. Joe Perry rested his Thompson submachine gun down in his lap. He squinted until the target at the other end of the attic came into focus. No bullseyes. Too bad. He consoled himself with a swig of a double black Russian, a.k.a. breakfast. Well, probably breakfast. It was hard to know for sure. Time didn't exist at the Cenacle. Only long moments. Stretches of time defined by whatever chemicals you stuffed your body with. Hours of drunken stupors. Afternoons in bed strung out on black tar heroin. Days without sleep. Outside of the Cenacle, time was still very real. Aerosmith had six weeks at the old convent to record a new album. In the eyes of Columbia Records, the Cenacle would be like rehab without actually sending the band to rehab. A place where the bad boys of Boston would be isolated from the fast life. Rocks already proved how catastrophic drugs were for the band's creativity. The album sounds flawless, almost too flawless. And that's because the band was so fucked up that they couldn't get through a clean take of any song. Each track had to be recorded 30, even 40 times, cut up and sewn back together using the best takes. Columbia thought nothing could be more inefficient. Columbia thought wrong. The Cenacle didn't isolate Aerosmith from drugs. It isolated them from each other. Joe's constant target practice with his toys in the attic shattered the silence more than the actual music did. The band practically wrote and recorded music in shifts. Brad Whitford, bassist Tom Hamilton, and drummer Joey Kramer pulled most of the weight. Regular deliveries of black tar heroin were making Joe Perry wilt. He slurred during sessions, his nose running, sometimes puking. Some days he showed up so incoherent that the band turned him away. He'd crawl back to his room and use the dismissal as an excuse to not re-emerge for days. Then Steven emerged to write some lyrics, or attempt to write some lyrics if he could manage to find the right room and keep his body upright. Gobbling down his daily regimen of tuanols left him seeing triple, if that's even possible. Three pens, three pieces of paper, three versions of each bandmate, nagging him to write down something clever. It was so dizzying he kept one hand over his eye to see straight. And as the band drifted apart, other characters cycled through the Cenacle. Joe Perry's buddy, the former New York Dolls frontman David Johansson, brought dope. Hired chefs handled the catering and dosed the food. Dealers made regular drop-offs. Steven's guy, Raymond, brought cocaine straight from New York City. He was the kind of dealer who sampled too much of his own wares. The squealing was coming from Steven's room. It sounded pained, inhuman, and Steven's ears perked up as he snickered to himself. Everyone in the band had mealtime rituals. Joe drank his breakfast with a gun in his hand. Stephen finished his dinner with two lines of cocaine, which he laid on his nightstand in advance. One day, 
He caught that guy Raymond with his nose pressed to the nightstand, sucking up a line like a hoover. Who did he think he was? This wasn't milk and cookies left out for Santa Claus. So Stephen left out something special for Raymond the next time he came around. Raymond yelped like a wounded animal. He stumbled down the stairs clutching his nose. Those nostrils were used to inhaling the finest blow money could buy, but tonight's powdered dessert wasn't blow. It was decades-old plaster that Stephen scraped off the ceiling. Raymond learned the hard way that Aerosmith didn't share. They didn't share a vision either, and they didn't share a sound really, as their new album made crystal clear. They didn't even share a sleep schedule, and they certainly didn't share their drugs. Not anymore. Aerosmith adopted a get-your-own policy, especially Joe. When Steven's stash ran low, he used to be able to count on Joe to spot it. But ever since Joe got hitched to that Alyssa Jarrett chick, he only shared his stash with her, and Stephen took the rejection personally. All of Aerosmith were supposedly brothers, but he and Joe were the toxic twins. And weren't twins supposed to share everything right down to their DNA? Alyssa didn't care if they were joined at the hip. Spouses trump siblings. She happily hogged Joe's drugs and his attention. Alyssa's sway over Joe was strong enough to inspire Stephen's barbed lyrics and sweet emotion. Alyssa wore things nobody else did, like cocaine as eyeliner, which, wasteful much? She talked about things nobody cared about, but still somehow found ways to regularly insult members of the band and sneak in off-color remarks. I mean, what kind of nasty stuff do you have to say to offend a man as crude as Steven Tyler? You'd think two people with big mouths would get along, but I digress. The selfishness in the band didn't start with Alyssa, but she certainly helped it spread. When Draw the Line hit the shelves in late 1977, Fans understood where the band drew the line, in between themselves. Lines between me and you and mine and yours. No touchy, no crossy, and get the fuck away from my line. The record sold 1.5 million copies in the first six weeks, but never cracked the top 10 of the Billboard 200. People assumed Draw the Line would be Rocks 2.0, but it wasn't. Columbia didn't care. 1.5 million record sales was a mighty number regardless of what the music sounded like. The band entered the studio, a normal studio, to start work on the next record in 1979. And when they left, they left without Joe Perry. His departure didn't come down to drugs. It didn't come down to the sound or to record sales either. Instead, Aerosmith ruptured over spilt milk. For real. The band avoided death once when they rejected that sad sack of a plane that took down Leonard Skinner. That didn't mean they wouldn't crash and burn all the same. Tension fueled Aerosmith at the 1979 World Series of Rock. Tension over drugs. Tension between Steven and Joe. Tension between Alyssa and literally everyone else. It hung in the air backstage at Cleveland Stadium like a foul odor. Then, Tom's wife made a comment that Alyssa didn't like. Alyssa kept her mouth shut for once. She threw a glass of milk on Tom's wife instead. The tension lifted. The spark was lit and Aerosmith imploded instantly. Steven shouted at Joe to control his woman. Steven claims he fired Joe then and there, and he swore never to share the stage with his toxic twin again, even if it meant worse music, even if it meant fewer people at shows and more hecklers, even if that meant that in just a few months, Steven would be splayed out on a stage faking a seizure, half dead inside, just like his band. Thank you.
Steven Tyler didn't care if he lived or died. Panic thoughts rushed through his mind, but he didn't say a word. He couldn't. Steven Tyler had finally shut his trap because his mouth had the barrel of a pistol inside of it. Another night on the street, shuffling down 8th Avenue in New York City, walking like a shit-faced man on stilts. Steven asked the wrong guy if he was selling dope tonight. The crook's finger trembled over the trigger. Give me your money give me the fucking rings too. Steven considered this for a moment. Giving up his money meant no heroin tonight. And no heroin tonight meant he'd be stuck in a cycle of anxiety for hours on end. Anxiety so bad it felt like dying. He might as well take the bullet at this rate. Nah, fuck that. Steven silently slid the rings off his fingers and tossed his wallet on the ground. It's not like he had much that people could steal these days anyway. Steven had a strict new allowance. $20 a day. It was supposed to limit his drug intake. Steven hacked that real fast. He requested extra cash from his team every day and said it was a tip for the limo driver. Steven then gave his driver 50 bucks and pocketed the rest. $150, three times as much. It's no wonder that the chauffeur was Steven's last luxury. His Porsche already went up his nose and so did his private plane and his house. $20 million, earned fast and spent just as fast. Supposedly $6 million of that sum was just for cocaine. Steven devised other workarounds to fund his worsening dependency. Aerosmith's new album built cocaine into the budget, disguised as funds for 24-track reels of tape. Aerosmith poured $1.5 million into their first album without all of its original members. And it didn't pay them back. Aerosmith's 1982 record, Rock in a Hard Place, was born out of desperation. No singles, no love from that new craze MTV, and no Joe Perry. The Blue Army dwindled. When they couldn't sell out stadiums, Aerosmith downgraded to club shows, and then they couldn't even sell those out. Toys in the attic and rocks gathered dust like relics, buried under the face-melting force of stadium-filling bands at the time like Iron Maiden and Judas Priest. There was a changing of the guard in rock, and Aerosmith was getting phased out. They needed something major to amp up their presence in the 1980s. A reunion. No, better. A reinvention. Steven Tyler wanted to know how the fuck Joe Perry could be working with Alice Cooper. You need to be here, he screamed into the phone. It was true. Joe already agreed to write new music with Alice. His own band, The Joe Perry Project, was doing just as well as Aerosmith, which is to say, it wasn't doing well at all. His 1983 album, Once a Rocker, Always a Rocker, couldn't even sell 50,000 copies. It was time to admit that both bands were back at square one, but they weren't goners, not just yet. The rubble of their former empire was still lying around and they just needed to cut the shit and clean it up. Steven took his crooked walk to rehab for the first time in the mid 80s. and Joe Perry hopped back in the saddle with Aerosmith around the same time. Joe was in and drugs were out. But it's never that simple. Drugs would have to be kicked out of Aerosmith over and over again before the sobriety would stick. But when it did stick, supposedly, it stuck to the charts. Hey, 
with records like Permanent Vacation, home of huge hits like Ragdoll and Dude Looks Like a Lady, and then Pump, Get a Grip, Nine Lives, with massive singles like Janie's Got a Gun, which I actually love, Crying, Crazy, and I could go on and on, but I won't. But all of that almost didn't exist, all because of egos, stubbornness, selfishness, cheesy rock star behavior, and because some so-called bad boys from Boston lived a little too close to the edge. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Disgraceland. Disgraceland was created by yours truly and is produced in partnership with Double Elvis. Credits for this episode can be found on the show notes page at disgracelandpod.com. If you're listening as a Disgraceland All Access member, thank you for supporting the show. We really appreciate it. And if not, you can become a member right now by going to disgracelandpod.com slash membership. Members can listen to every episode of Disgraceland ad-free. Plus, you'll get one brand new exclusive episode every month. Weekly unscripted bonus episodes, special audio collections, and early access to merchandise and events. Visit disgracelandpod.com slash membership for details. Rate and review the show and follow us on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, and Facebook at DisgracelandPod and on YouTube at youtube.com slash at DisgracelandPod. Rock a roller.